listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God, episode three. We are a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and horror. Just two friends having a conversation about that. My name is Reed Lackey. And Nathan Rouse here. And uh, we're, we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for listening. Nathan, how are you doing? Doing good, man. Getting excited to talk about this movie today. Um, do you mind if we jump right in? Oh, no, please. Let's do it. Let's awesome. Right awesome. So, yeah, last, t- last week we talked about Devil. Um, had a lot of rich conversation there. And uh, you should go check it out. In addition to the fact that it's just a good movie um, and worth your time. But today uh, we are talking about um, James Wan's the conjuring you know so as our podcasts are typically going to go up front we're going to talk about just the movie what we like what we you know possibly disliked you know just the general response to it maybe uh picking out a few things that kind of scared us specifically because these are horror movies (laughs) um and then we'll segue into uh some of the deeper themes that maybe the movie is uh wrestling with kind of have a hopefully another rich conversation about that so for myself, I don't know what number this would have been for you, Reed, if you refreshed, but this is my second time watching The Conjuring. I did see it in the theater. Okay. It's third for me. Third? Okay. Yeah. Um, as I discussed in my our first podcast, where it was more intro time, like, historically, I don't just go see a horror movie because it's a horror movie necessarily. You know, I, I, I try to be a bit discerning. And, and I don't know, for some reason, that one looked at the time of its theater release, you know, just just... Looked pretty good. Looked worth the time. I like the thrill ride, um, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, of just experiencing a horror movie. And man, was I not disappointed as far as that goes. (laughs) Uh, The Conjuring might be kind of in total one of the scariest movies I personally have ever seen. You know, just lots going on. In in brief, loosely based on true stories of this pair of, I think they call themselves paranormal investigators, uh, husband and wife, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. And... The film, The Conjuring, the first one, and and our next podcast is actually going to talk about The Conjuring too. Some of those may that that may get addressed a little bit here, but we're going to try to save the bulk of that conversation for follow up podcast. But the story of Conjuring one, this family, you know, moves into this old dilapidated farmhouse, and yeah, crazy craziness ensues, and <laughs> um, you know, the the Warrens get brought into the story to sort of help with them. Um, sort of a period X Files. Sort uh-huh. of, uh, but but I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in our Conjuring 2 discussion. So purely on just uh, what do you like, what do you dislike, um, or, or you know initial responses to the movie, one thing I sort of dislike that's actually going to lead to what I like, Reed, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. So like the Conjuring 1, they throw kind of every horror trope into this movie. I mean, it is mm. all there. You've got... Yeah. The haunted dummy doll, which why would anyone keep that in their home? I don't know. Oh, I have thoughts about that that we'll get into. Yeah, you got that going on. You've got demonic stuff. You've got exorcism. You've got the dilapidated farmhouse. You've got, and this is a bit of a stretch, you've got the cellar. Nobody knew was there until they're in the house. (laughs) You've got, you don't just have like parents and kids being assailed. You've got parents and five daughters. It's like... Yeah. It's like the it's like the nightmare version of little women, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I kind of don't like that. Um like it, it it almost is like okay, geez, y'all just, you know, I made this joke at Batman versus Superman, which is a random aside to make how they actually did throw in a kitchen sink in Batman Superman. Like, <laughs> you know, you you may as well have that in the conjuring in terms of just horror conventions. All of that said though, it works. Yeah. Somehow it all kind of moves in a direction that just makes it work. I think part of it for me, 
that makes it all kind of work is more or less, this is all kind of practical effects. I think this is a lost art, you know, um, whether you're talking sci-fi or horror, you know, just the ability to pull something off on screen that isn't post-production just enhances its believability, you know, hand, enhances yeah. its visceral sort of nature. So I think that aids the, this movie. Um, I also think, and I'd love to have you piggyback on your thoughts on this. I think personally what makes the conjuring more than just another horror movie about exorcisms and families beleaguered by that honestly is the characters of Ed and Lorraine Warren. I think you juxtapose a very straightforward, very kind of traditional horror story. And I don't know what it is exactly, you know, it might be their performances, which we can talk about some, but I think that is what elevates this material. Yes. What, what, what do you think about that? No, I completely agree with you. I was uh, a couple, couple of quick thoughts rattling off. I, I want to give some props to, I think James Wan has very rapidly established himself as a, a horror genre director that is going to be on the same shelf with, after time, uh, he's going to be on the same shelf with Wes Craven. He's going to be on the same shelf with John Carpenter. I mean, he, he sort of kicked the door down in the horror arena with Saw, which uh, in some ways changed the genre. I have not seen any of those. You know, maybe we'll get to those at some point. I'm not seeing. Yeah, uh, maybe a conversation about the first one, but that's sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, he he sort of kicked the door down in many ways. Saw uh, in conjunction with Eli Roth's Hostel sort of changed the face of the genre for a season. And uh, so James Wan then you know went on to direct a, a decent, I think we'd even say pretty good movie called Dead Silence, and then went into these. Uh, he had the Insidious franchise he directed insidious one and insidious. Are those are do you like have you seen those do you like them i've not seen any of them i i have seen part one i have not as of now seen part two but i liked part one a lot um yeah and uh and 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 it's actually got some of the same flavor as the conjuring but uh, but, I, I figured, yeah. yeah but one thing that i would that that i would say uh in in response to what you mentioned about like the horror tropes that the conjuring uses i actually found that for myself to be very refreshing because I felt like the last like maybe 10 to 12 years horror had tried so difficult. It it tried so hard to reinvent itself as this, what people have considered, you know, they've dubbed it, you know, torture porn or, you know, gornography. I've heard terms like that a lot of times. I've not heard that one. (laughs) <laughs> Where, you know, that the, it would just obsess and relish in the torture of sure. its victim and the, you know, just dis- disgusting imagery. And that's something that's been an element of every horror film ever, but it's just done in a different way. One of the things that I found refreshing about The Conjuring is that it did get back to sort of old school horror. I love telling people this when I'm recommending this movie to them. So we're not prudes. Neither of us uh, are, are shy away from adult content to foul language or, you know, sexuality in films, especially violence, anything like that. But I tell people like it's rated R. Um, there's almost no foul language. I don't know if there's any, there's zero sexuality and the violence itself is, is minimal. Sure. Uh, the reason it, the, when they asked, when James Wan and the producers of the film asked the MPAA, why did you give this an R rating? <laughs> they responded, uh, iconically as just saying, it's just so scary. <laughs> There's nothing. You it's can funny cut. you say that. I just after I watched rewatched the film the other night, I saw that like on the Wikipedia page, like, and that was that was really interesting to me because that is true. Yeah, this is oh, truly, it's so re- true. Re- regardless of what I said, was sort of a complaint. Like, there's so much going on in it in terms of touch points, horror touch points. It legitimately is scary. Oh, just it's so scary, hands down. Yeah, and I think a big part of that you mentioned the five daughters and everything, but I, but Nathan, I think a huge component of that is. I personally really care about these characters and I have more to say about what you mentioned with the Warrens, but, sure. but I really, uh, I care about the Perone family, the family yeah. that is sort of in peril. Like I care about them. I like these people. I, the, the, they don't really, the actors, Lily Taylor and, uh, oh, I'm embarrassing myself cause I don't remember the, the, uh, father's name right now. Is that Ron Livingston? Ron Livingston. Yeah. Ron Livingston. So Lily Taylor and Ron Livingston deliver great performances, very substantial performances. So I like, I really care about the Perone family and I care about whether or not they make it out of this. But then as you mentioned, and I couldn't agree more that the anchor for this film and for the second one, which we'll talk about another time, the anchor for these films are the Warrens. And I think very specifically because there's been a lot of debate coming out of these movies about whether or not 
the Warrens in real life, because it is based on a true story, it's based on real people, at least for, for them, whether or not in real life they are uh, hucksters, are they scam artists, are they, um, you know, capitalists trying to uh, sort of feed on people's fears and interest in the paranormal to try to substantiate a business for themselves. So there's all this debate going on about who they are. All of that aside, here's my feelings on it. The, the Warrens themselves, I've never met them. I have not, I've only done minimal research about them. So I don't know how I feel about it one way or another, but the fictional versions of the Warrens that James Wan and the screenwriters, the Hayes brothers and Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, the fictional versions of the Warrens that they've crafted, I care very deeply about. <laughs> they mean a lot to me. Um, those, that, that couple, both their, their relationship as a couple and the fight that they bring to the, the supernatural elements, uh, that are attacking this family. Uh, I think that is a huge part of why audiences responded to this film because you really root for them and you really want to see things go well. And at the same time, the threat that they're facing is really dire and it's very severe. Sure. Um, so regardless let me, let of me, uh, feelings, let me jump uh, in here real quick, Reed. So I, I, I want us to get into some of those thematic elements too. I, I actually think what you're, I think what you're brushing up against is actually lar- more informed in the second movie um, in mm. terms of the strength of those characters. Now, Hear me. I think if, if all we had was the Conjuring one, I would still agree with you. I think that specific spoke on the wheel of what makes these movies work is greatly enhanced by the second film. Right. Um, so want to resist a little bit of that, though. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the movie itself, and then we'll get into some of these thematic things. So, you know, something we did last time, and I want us to sort of keep doing. Uh, maybe we'll find some sort of uh, pithy way of doing this, but um, is just talk about some of the scares. You know. Oh sure. Um, sure. Because they definitely are present. Uh, I've got about uh, three listed here. I don't know where you're at, but um, I'll start I'll start with one. If time permits, I'll do all three, but I definitely want to do two of them. One of the first scares building in sort of level of scariness, so I'm withholding my most scared moment, um, but is the thing on top of the wardrobe? Oh, yes. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. About. It still haunts my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't um, what, something's happening in that scene? Like, like that's a reveal. Like, it's not just boom; it's there. I think is it is it the mom or one of the daughters coming into the room and sees it up there? I, I can't yes, exactly. Yeah, it's actually you think that they've gotten out of it. I think my con. I think my conscious mind was so terrified it blocked out exactly what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I'll say on that, it, it, just something that James Wan does really well as a horror director, is he sustains that tension in ways that uh, I, I see few people do it. There's so many other other horror directors, like they do tons of jump cuts, and they'll, um, they'll do these sort of manipulative tricks to try to just make the audience jump and, and be startled. But he withholds, like what's so amazing about the film, despite how scary your memory of it will be, is if you look back at it and analyze the individual scenes. It's a very actually restrained movie and it's, it's scares are more focused so that when they come, they deliver a bigger punch because he's not trying every few seconds to startle sure, you. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. they just build the tension and continue to let it escalate. And then when you see that thing on top of the wardrobe, as one example, then it is, it is such an in your face, like, oh, okay, this is very scary. Cause you've just spent like five or six minutes with that tension building without lots of little releases. And I think that's something he does very effectively as a director. I loved that moment. Yeah, that would have been on my list too. Cool. What, what, what's one you got? Uh, well, the next one, you probably had this on your list. Um, so I apologize if I'm jumping onto it, but man, the, the clapping game. Good God, the clapping game. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, like, I presume you're referring specifically. This is a trailer moment, you know, the, yeah, when she yeah. gets stuck on the stairs. And honestly, even knowing it's in the trailer... And having seen it in the trailer, and when I rewatched it recently, it was with a buddy, and he hadn't seen anything, so he wanted to watch the movie. And seeing the trailer again, even when it happens in the movie, it is terrifying. Oh, it's so scary. That is... Yeah. And and I don't even think that, you know, it's, it's just how it's executed on film, honestly. Like, I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, in the context of the movie, it kind of is what... It's just one more kind of bump in the road. But how it's visually executed, man, that's a terrifying moment. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I completely agree. And that's, I think, probably the most effective. If there was a, you know, a moment of the movie that I would say this is this is horror scares done right. Um, it would definitely be that that hand clap game. And and I do think some people said when they've talked about that uh, in conversations that I've been privy to, they said that because it was in the trailer, it lost its effectiveness in the film. I personally disagree. It didn't lose it for me at all. I still think it's a no. terrifying little moment. Lily Taylor is such an accomplished actress, and she sells every inch of that so yep. well. Um, yep. But but also, you know, credit to her as an actress and credit to Juan as a director of how they executed that scene because it is very effective and it's very scary. Um, and I think that probably gets my pick for scariest moment of the movie, even given some of the more outrageous things at the end. I would, uh, I would totally agree with that. And yes, you did steal that thunder, but that's totally cool. Cause we're back <laughs> here. Though, though actually I will say my third one, uh, though lesser, I, I would, I would totally validate and affirm the clap as the hot, <laughs> not the disease, but the, um, Boom. the moment in the movie, as the height of terrifying, um, you know, disregarding the sort of actual exorcism scene, which is itself terrifying. It's a bit more prolonged and I had seen the movie. So I was kind of ready for it. I think the first time I saw the movie, the actual exorcism is pretty nightmarish. I mean, that's yeah, it's pretty, pretty intense. That's pretty scary. But where I was going in terms of just jump moments, another one that I was considering not mentioning, but we'll throw in now uh, for our listeners is the, it's the scene where, you know, the, the daughter has started to be plagued in the night by this thing, yanking her leg and that sort of thing. And oh, so yeah. it's about midway, I think it's about midway through the film. And it might be that daughter who's standing at the door, the tension's building, what's going on. And the daughter who's remaining in bed's like, don't you see, look, at, look over there. And she's like, what are you talking about? And she said, it's standing right behind you and there's nothing there. And oh, then the door gosh. slams and it's just terrifying. You know, oh, I mean, yes. that's just one of those moments. Like, like you said, I, I think the power of the conjuring one is as, as, you know, I think probably most legitimate horror directors might agree, uh, is what's not seen. You know, I mean, like, yes. we, the viewer, are like straining our eyes. Something is there. Something is there. But you, but there's nothing on screen. But then this character says, uh, there is something standing right behind you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh, yes. That's, that's, oh, that's yeah. kind of any person, character, or uh, a fictional or in real life's worst nightmare. <laughs> Exactly. Well, now, okay. So, so here's something that that again, talking about a, a a technical narrative element of the story, but maybe even might transition us into some of what we want, what I want to discuss thematically on this is. So, it opens. I really admire this structure, and even though we'll talk about it when we talk about Conjuring Two, they adopted the same structure in the second film. I like the idea of we open with a kind of a mini case. Sure. There's a there's you know there's a small side story sort of introducing us to the Warrens themselves before we get into the main story that we're dealing with. And that film, uh, producers who loved the fact that the movie made millions and millions of dollars and made well over its budget, I think multiple times over, they saw an opportunity to capitalize on that and made a um, side film, Annabelle, which I have not seen, but I've heard uh, is not very good. Right. Um, but what interested me about this is, so the Warrens, as much as I love these fictional versions of them, they have a room in their house <laughs> full yep. of yep. all of these these trinkets of evil, full of the, all of these sort of uh, items that, that supposedly have malevolent spirits attached to them. And one of my first thoughts are like, man, I love Jesus. <laughs> I am very religious as a person. There is no way that I would feel confident like housing <laughs> a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of malevolent objects in a room of my house where my child slept like that just wouldn't right. happen yeah. that is not gonna happen. yeah they they should be reported to <laughs> services. oh man and that actually is something that i thought about kind of in a broader way and uh before we get into this was there anything else on a technical level that you wanted to to mention about the film because this is going to kind of transition us into theme a little bit are you good um, I'm good. I, I want to throw a theme at you real quick. I know this is a, a an unexpected bit here, and, and we don't have to spend long on it, but something I found interesting in watching both of these movies, and I don't know if this is a, a James Wan-ism or, you know, these, these screenwriters, but, you know, I just watched The Conjuring 2 last night, and you and I debriefed it briefly, and, and both of us came away from both of these films. Like, I hope I'm not butchering her name. Vera Farmiga. No, that's right. Vera Farmiga. That's correct. Yeah. Um, Man, she 
sings on screen. And I think what's interesting to me about both of these movies, uh, and, and this is a, a, a sort of bookmark theme, you know, for listeners at home, I've got two daughters, I'm married, I, I, I have a very, I've got a uh, spoiler alert, third daughter on the way. And, um, you know, I have a very, uh, a, a household full of women. And I think what's interesting watching these two movies, these are very feminine movies in like an extremely mm. positive way. I mean that in a, in a, like they're, they're almost feminist movies. Like interesting. I hear, I hear you talk about Lily Taylor and Ron Livingston. And I, I would disagree. I don't think Ron Livingston is there, but set dressing. Um, oh, interesting. I, which, which isn't knocking him. I just mean like the script doesn't do much for him. Um, I think, I don't think I disagree with that that much. I think you're right. You know, the movie is about it's, it's, it's maternal. I mean, even the demon assaulting them is a mother, you know, right, right. and a mother who killed her child. So there's this very kind of maternal feminine element going on. And let's not ignore the, the elephant in the room. There's five daughters yes. and the center, the centerpiece of the movie is the mother and the five daughters. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. Um, the, the central conflict of the movie is about this demented mother, you know, the, the, the ghost of this demented mother trying once more to kill a child, you know? And, and I think, and, and yet it's this sort of maternal thing that solves the problem, right? I mean, right, the Conjuring One sort of ends with Lorraine Warren reaching through the floorboards and putting her hand on Lily Taylor's head and sort of, you know, kind of completing the exorcism ritual in a, in a sense. But like, I don't know, these are very feminist movies. And I find that kind of refreshing. And, you know, not that by any stretch, am I going to subject my seven year old to the conjuring, but you know, <laughs> something that I would be like, th these movies kind of break the mold a little bit. Th these aren't damsels in distress. Well, yes, these, the women in this movie are sort of victim to this entity. It's not like, the men have to save them. And I found that a very refreshing sort of theme. Anyway, that, that was me sort of interjecting something we hadn't really talked about yet, but found a really right. interesting component of the movie. Well, here's what I, here's what I want to do. Cause I actually, uh, you've, you stumbled on something that I want to take at least a few minutes here and talk about. Cause I think it's really interesting that you say that the horror genre is unique in this regard, unique versus action films or fantasy films. The horror genre has a trope inherent in it that every fan of horror recognizes. And that's the trope we call the final girl. And the, there is typically in, in many horror films, the ones that immediately come to mind are like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alien. Uh, there were, there are many Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, where the final conflict comes down to a monster versus a girl. Mm -hmm. And that girl could be a woman, she could be a younger girl, whatever it is, but it comes down to the monster versus a girl. And in many, many cases, the girl uh, either either wins or gets away. And I think it's interesting that uh, I think that's unique to the horror genre, mm -hmm. that there is a component that you're that you're touching on here that could be seen that the horror genre itself um, could be seen in one of two ways, depending on your perspective. Um, and I, I, I see it one way. Our listeners may see it a different way, but it could be seen that this film is objectifying those women because it's constantly putting them in peril. I think there's a very legitimate way to look at it where you're saying like, well, no, it's actually ultimately lots of people, men and women fall at these monsters, but a common trope of the film is for it to come down to a final female who often bests the monster. And often beats the monster. Sure. Um, and that's a pretty common trope that I think it's, it's, it's present in the conjuring in a bit more of an overt way. But I think that's actually something that the horror genre has had at its, at its table or in its deck, um, to use that analogy for a very long time. Um, like you mentioned, and, and there's an episode to be had here, so we can save it for this, but I'll just mention it in passing that, um, the character of Ripley, in the alien movies, one of the things that I love so much about her as a character is that she is distinctly feminine. She's not, sure. uh, she's not a masculine woman. She's distinctly a very feminine woman who is just, uh, she's awesome <laughs> at, at, yeah, at, yeah, uh, yeah. at beating, at beating these aliens. And she just knows what she's doing and she knows what she's talking about. And I think that's very empowering. Speaking to somebody who doesn't have daughters, I, I still recognize from an objective point of view that that's an empowering sentiment. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, your, your sort of, uh, 
breadth of awareness of the horror genre would inform that a little better than mine would. I think something, even in the ones I'd be familiar with as much as you might, uh, the Conjuring films really jumped out at me for that particular reason. And I think, I think even your reference to Sigourney Weaver and Ripley, which I mean, yeah, I mean, she, that, that character is considered just a, a paragon of feminine empowerment in, in the sort of horror slash action genre. I would still say that she still, uh, Ripley still kind of adopts though with her own feminine take on it, the action persona, you know, yeah, by, right, by right. especially as those story as those movies unfold, but even specifically in the first one or two. Whereas I think the Lorraine Warren character, like, never once are you like, well, this is an action hero, you know, and, and that's, that's something I want to talk yeah. about more with Conjuring Two because I think it's more present there. But um, you know, I think there's, I don't know, I think I think her femininity is what makes that movie, and she and Lily Taylor that sort of dynamic is what raises it above just something real straightforward and traditional. Another, another theme I want to introduce here and, and, you know, maybe surprising you with some of this, cause we didn't really talk about it, but, and this may dovetail into some of what you have written down as well. Like is the, is the conversation of the based on a true story idea. Um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, last week we talked about devil and I think there is, I think something that, enhances the strength of the movie devil is I'm never really wondering, is this a true story or not? You know, Uh, I'm just sort of, uh, I'm, I'm given a very boundaried, uh, story and I engage it for what it is doing specific to itself. And I think, you know, horror movies and kind of military movies love the based on a true story subtitle. Right. And, and I want, I, I want to talk about this for a minute and, and get your thoughts here. So, you know, there's the, there's the biopic genre, which is going to be, quote unquote, based on a true story. Well, I can watch a biopic and not be concerned with, well, did that actually happen the way that is being portrayed? I can just sort of understand screenwriting and, and certain things are going to get meshed together. Certain things are going to get omitted. Certain things are going to get embellished. And it kind of is what it is because you're just sort of telling a rough arc of a specific person who existed in the real world. And there's no bother there. It just kind of is what it is. And maybe I'll Google, well, how did that actually happen? Right. But I feel like when you get into the horror genre, and this does dovetail into our discussion of bigger spiritual themes, I don't like, and honestly don't appreciate the based on a true story thing because, and there's you know a couple of spokes on this wheel that as I'm watching the movie, my brain in the background, you know, if, if, if my head is a computer running in the background is, uh, did this, did this really happen? Does this stuff take place in the real world? Am I concerned? You know, like, what do I think about this on a real level? Um, which again, there's room for that conversation. I'm not dismissing that, but it sort of takes me out of being able to just wrestle with what they are telling me. Mm, Yeah. And I think specific to something like the conjuring, which as you sort of alluded to the Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, were they hucksters? Are they legit? You know, there's a whole spectrum of sort of conversation to mind there. I don't want to be thinking about that during this movie. I don't want to be thinking about, oh my gosh, is, or one of, or one of the items in my house possessed by a demon. Like, <laughs> not because that scares me necessarily, although, yeah, that's scary. But what I'm trying to say is, I want to be thinking about the story you're telling me. How does it resonate with me? What application does it have for me in life and in the real world as a spiritual being? And I think with these movies, they sort of hamstring themselves by throwing that based on a true story there because I can't engage specifically what's happening on screen without thinking about other stuff. Can you talk about that a little bit? No, I completely understand what you mean. And I, I, I would say in response to it, like it doesn't really bother me, but I don't think it's ever necessary. Like I almost immediately when it says based on a true story, if I'm talking, if I'm looking at a, like a drama or, a, or, or some sort of action film, uh, specifically maybe one that took, take place in nature, uh, and you know, like, oh, somebody gets lost in the woods and they fight against the elements. It's based on a true story. Um, you know, whenever I see those, I'm a little bit more inclined to do exactly what you just described about thinking in the back of my mind, is this, did this really happen? Is this how it happened? But for some reason, when it comes to horror, I just automatically know, well, 
okay, so it could it could be there are two people in the world exist that are named Ed and Lorraine Warren. So it's based on a true story, <laughs> you know, like right, you know, right. they, like it, I don't know exactly to what degree it goes, you know. Um, well, I think I think you're identifying sort of my problem with the phrasing is it's like either either omit that phrasing completely or, you know, which would never be done, be a little more honest and just be like, um, loosely based on loose interpretations about certain things that may have in a certain context happened, but not necessarily <laughs> like what we're about to depict. So don't take it too seriously. Just enjoy the movie. You that know, like a long <laughs> disclaimer at the front of a movie. <laughs> well, let me ask sure. you this. Let me yeah. ask you this. Do you feel, would you feel better about the phrase, which I have seen used sometimes inspired by a true story? Would you feel better about that? Yes. I think that's, I think because, and again, this is, while yes, we're talking about my feelings in response to Conjuring, I think it's more misleading as a filmmaker. I think, I think you are propping up, hey, viewer, a lot of viewers out there, not us, and certainly not our listeners, who are not quite as discerning will take that and be like, oh my gosh, this really happened to the Warrens. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, there, there needs to be some nuance to this. So yeah, I think, and I think sometimes movies do use that phrasing that you just said, inspired by a true story. That's to me, that's much more, okay, well, cool. That's much more freewheeling. I can, I can sort of roll with that. I think whenever they use this based on a true story, like, right, right. because this happened as it's going to be depicted in the real world, you should fear for your soul. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> right. Because I think specifically in the horror genre, that is where trouble happens because, because you are dealing with these deeply psychological and spiritual sort of notions that you can't really, or shouldn't in my opinion, play around with, you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah. one thing, it's one thing to have the nature movie where the man does or doesn't get mauled by a bear say, um, you know, based on a true story. Oh, well, you know, this affected one person in a certain specific way. And, you know, it is what it is. Whereas if, if the conjuring one, as it exists as a movie happened specifically as it depicts in the real world, that has pretty serious ramifications, you know, right. For, for more than just an engaging movie. Anyway, that's a whole sort of you know conversation that I just, I just found interesting as I've watched both of these movies that I can't kind of get out of my head is that sort of based on true story versus not. Um, and just, you know, sort of a theme for conversation, but, you know, also curious, you know, I'm sure you've got some on deck too that are worth, sure. Uh, worth some conversation. Um, well, I had, I had two specific sort of things that I wanted to talk about, but I definitely, uh, to sort of wrap up the conversation about based on true story, I think if I didn't make this clear earlier, like I, I just don't think it's very necessary. I think they do that, um, for exactly the reasons you're describing to try to, draw viewers in and to, to, uh, make the case in a kind of a, uh, I'm reluctant to call it a devious way, but they're trying to make the case like you should be afraid because this really happened, right. you know? And, and I don't know that that's really valid. Well, sure. It enhances the, it enhances the atmosphere. Certainly. Sure. And I would, sure. I would agree with you. Devious might be strong word, but deceptive might not be too strong. I mean, although, uh, and, and I'm, I kind of to a, to a degree much more, uh, admire the very overt strategy of like a Blair witch project, which not only said based on a true story, it in all of its marketing, pretended to be a true story sure like yeah. like pretended yeah. with everything and and i do that is an episode uh worth having at some point about that movie specifically but um but it i remember in 99 when that movie came out and it was the first kind of found footage of its time and people wondered very specifically is, is this a real thing or not because the website indicated that it was um they did have that little disclaimer these events are fictitious at the end but they did they they didn't. They didn't lead with that. <laughs> that was very much a. This is a, this is a true thing that's happening. So so kind of shifting from that a little bit. Uh, the thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, sort of the main thing, and you referenced it earlier. We talked about that they made a side film about Annabelle the doll, and I should. I want to clarify this on a broad spectrum for the for this show. I'm not very interested in getting things right or accurate in terms of like, there are people who are more educated than I am about theology. There are people who know more about the scriptures than I do. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm like, oh, well, here's the, the valid theological standpoint about blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm much more interested in, the, in exploring than I am in explaining. Sure. Uh, but I do have a question that came out of my viewings of The Conjuring, and that is, do you, like, I wonder, do we think it's possible 
that, uh, and I have a couple of thoughts on this before I get your response, so maybe take some time to think about this, that do we think it's possible that that supernatural things could attach themselves to non-living natural things? Um, in the movie, they have a, a room set aside full of all of these trinkets that supposedly have demonic spirits attached to them or malevolent spirits attached to them. And, and I looked, I did a little bit of rudimentary research, and there's no biblical example of that. There's no, there's no story in the Bible where a, an evil presence like attached itself to an object that wasn't also alive. There are certainly possession stories, but there are not stories where like, you know, somebody has a doll and that doll is, is like Annabelle infected with a sort of a malevolent spirit. That's because the smart people of the world know to burn that junk, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, But what is interesting is that the opposite is true. There are instances in the scripture where the presence of God or, or a good spirit would attach itself. Well, it's always the presence of God. I am reluctant to say a good spirit because in the Bible, any, any good spirit is, is the Lord that attaches itself to an object. I'm thinking of a couple examples and I, I'm, I'm not expecting you to remember these, but in first Samuel five, there's a story that I love where the Philistines capture, they win a battle and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, and in an act of defiance, they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Uh, and they put it in there right in front of the altar. Well, when they come in the next morning, the the statue of Dagon is bowing down to the, to the Ark. Hmm. And then they set the statue back up. They do the same thing. They come in the next morning, and it's bowing down again. They come in on the third morning. Not only is it bowing down, but its head has broken off. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it, that's kind of a cool story. To think about anyway, but it, but it's, you know, there, there was no body there. There was just the Ark of the Covenant was there. Uh, and the presence of God, of course, in the context of the story was so present in this, in this inanimate thing that the temple that they had erected to, to Dagon, the statue was bowing down to it. There's another example in Second Samuel chapter six where they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. They're carrying it back home, but they've, packaged it improperly and they've put it on kind of a teetering ox cart and one man named Uzzah at one point reaches out to steady the ark and he dies instantly because he's he's disrespected the ark by by sort of handling it as if it were a common thing Um, and I'm not going to get into the theological conversation about that because what I'm talking about is do we think it's possible that something supernatural could attach itself to something natural that's not alive. What do you, what do you generally think about that? <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to start by saying, uh, it felt very dismissive when you started that thread by saying, I don't expect you to remember these. Oh, well, I apologize. Because right before I'm, I'm playing with you. Um, because right before you started on that, I literally wrote down Ark of the covenant. Um, <laughs> though, yes, I, all that said, no, I did not remember the story of Dagon and the, the headless, uh, statue though. Yes, Uzzah, I'm quite familiar with. Um, man, <laughs> what a what a what a fraught subject, you know. I mean, my personally, my experience is pretty limited in terms. You know, you you read all these or hear tell of all these sort of mission stories in sort of deep third world countries, you know, uh, um, quote unquote uncivilized areas, and sort of the you know kind of arcane rituals involved there, and certain artifacts carrying or, or, or having spiritual significance, golly, how, how do you even approach that? I mean, I think, you know, this, this movie certainly, uh, again, if we're to believe that it's based on a true story, <laughs> you know, that the Warren, that the Warrens have their bat cave of, of, you know, uh, nefarious artifacts, uh, heaven help the subsequent homeowner trying to get that place clean. <laughs> You know, I, I think it's an interesting conversation. It's hard to kind of wrap my head around that idea. Um, that said, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I personally would not invest a whole lot of uh, spiritual energy, mental bandwidth into the idea of inanimate objects carrying uh, spiritual meanings or, or even power. You know, I, I do think that said... I mean, I do think there are, you, you and I debriefed some of these conversation topics before we podcast, and so I've been wrestling sort of around with this question a bit. And, you know, if, if there is truth to the notion that, 
you know, an artifact can, can house or inhabit or be inhabited by darkness or, or, you know, deviousness or wickedness, however you want to put it, you know, is, can the converse be true? And, and, you know, I think, I think while I'm not ready to say, yes, you know, an inanimate object can carry goodness or evil, uh, one or the other, I do think, uh, taking that up a level in terms of the conversation, like I do believe in palpable goodness, you know, I think, mm. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I don't mean to sort of deviate from what you might be actually asking or, or sort of not answering that question, but I just think that's a really tough thing to wrestle with of, or in terms of knowledge and, and sort of certitude. But I do, for me personally, I, t- I, think, I think in some, a, a, a scripture that has come to me, even just watching the Conjuring movies um, and even engaging the horror genre writ large is, <laughs> it's going to sound counterintuitive, but stay with me, is you know, whatever is good, pure, true, think on these things, you know, and, and while it may seem counter to watch horror movies and honor that scripture, I don't know that that's patently true. And what I mean by that is, you know, the question of can wickedness, can evil inhabit a certain item? I, I don't know. And, and honestly, I don't feel like it's worth my spiritual energy to, to belabor that or to deeply concern myself with that. Because what I do believe is that goodness can be palpable and that, yeah. If there is strength in a faithful life period, it's that in some metaphysical, metaspiritual, yet very true way to me, you can, you can, there's, you know, there's magic in doing good. And, and I know I'm mixing genres here, magic and horror, but, but, you know, I think, I think the sort of baseline sentiment is similar and that's that doing good creates palpable essence in the world. I no, I, I I agree with you. Uh, I think that um, while I would tend to lean on the side of skepticism uh, regarding a definitive statement, yes, evil can attach itself to objects. I would lean on skept. I would be skeptical about that notion. Anybody came to me of that, but in general, I operate in life with the sense that you know what um, things are possible. Things are very possible. And so if somebody were to tell me, hey, no, I've had an experience like this, I would say, I find that interesting. I think I'm skeptical, but I find that interesting. And what I would say to, you know, to possibly kind of uh, lead us into what we'll wrap up with is I definitely agree with you about the palpability of good. And I have a fundamental belief in this entire conversation that light is greater than darkness, that, that light is stronger than darkness. And I think it might be somewhat significant that, you know, regardless of the chemistry or formula for how or uh, whether or not it was possible for something to attach itself to a non-living object. I think it's interesting that the Bible gives no specific examples of evil attaching itself to objects, but we've talked about examples where good does. And I think that if we're going to be talking about the the attachment to an object or to a place, because in The Conjuring, lest we get too distant from the core story, that the, not only do they have a room full of objects, but the Perones move into a home that is that is like the place is haunted. Sure, sure. So the place it's you know the place itself, the house is not alive, but but it houses this uh, you know no pun intended houses this uh, malevolent spirit, this this evil that has taken place before, so that it's on the land and that it's that it's a part of the place. Whether or not we think that that's true. I think what you said is really appropriate that there's a palpability to good and that that good is is a force that is stronger than we often give it credit for and I think if there's anything that could be inhabited tangibly I think that 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 good would be what we should focus on and you know something that I was uh, the the last sort of thing that I was going to talk about is in that same vein when the mother I believe her name is Carolyn uh, when the mother is is sort of possessed by this by this spirit, and then she combats it and ultimately defeats it by, you know, attaching herself. There, there's a photograph in, that she has in her head. Now, so we're not talking about a literal photograph, but there's an image that she has in her head of wow. her family. Yep. yep. And and that is what, in her imagination, that's the key. With the help of the Warrens, that's the key that breaks the spell. That's the key that. Well, sort and of and to contextualize that, to interrupt and contextualize that, I mean. But, but to undergird what you're saying, you know, not 20 minutes earlier in the movie, she and, and, and Lorraine are, are observing that photo and she's telling the story of its 
significance and it is very it is very significant to her and and yeah. and representative of all that she intends and wants and and desires for her family in terms of the good and beautiful and so yeah i mean i think i think that's a powerful parallel to draw there that that regardless of of you know the how and the why that she gets assaulted and assailed by this entity what ultimately draws her out is is you know sort of to to reference that scripture again whatever is good and pure and true you know this is what you mm-hmm. desire and want and endeavor for your heart and family and and what it means to you like that is what she uses to combat this thing with the help you know i mean with the help of them present uh so i think that's a very powerful i think it's a very powerful uh point to make um and th- this seems like a you know and just sort of uh speed round themes here um something that was interesting to me that the movie probably didn't intend but but my christian subculture vernacular sort of gave gave voice to was i wrote down when i was taking notes watching the movie the priesthood of all believers and that's that the movie makes very clear that Ed and Lorraine are not emissaries of the church. Oh, right, right, right. And that, that they are more about validating the, the sort of the wickedness so that the church can re- retain its own credibility, whether or not it goes in. But what's interesting that the movie does is once the entity has fully taken hold of Carolyn, Ed steps in. And basically says, right. we can't get her out. They're not going to get here in time. I have to do this. And, and I think to me, that was a really powerful moment. Again, you know, in that context of priesthood of all believers, like your capacity to impart good in a situation is not beholden to your status to the church. Amen. Right. You know, again, I, I know that seems like a convoluted sort of point to make, but I, I don't know. It just really stuck out to me that they make the movie makes a very clear point. These people aren't representing quote unquote, the, the institutional good, you know, and yet when the chips are down, they are the ones who have to make the palpable good happen and, 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 and help facilitate the good in the story um, so that these people can, can live free of what's oppressing them. So that's, that's yeah. sort of a bullet point theme I took away too. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's uh, to kind of merge these all together and possibly wrap up. I think that's that's something that I really walked away from The Conjuring with is this idea that, you know, whether or not we believe that there is objective evil in the world and that that objective evil can break into the natural world in any sort of entry point, whether that be a place or whether that be an object or uh, whether that be a person, that there is definitely we would tend to think that we are ill-equipped to meet this, this, this charge. I didn't expect to say this, but I think I'll say this and, and possibly sort of end on this note. Uh, one of my favorite books ever written by anybody is Something Wicked This Way Comes. And there's a conversation in that book um, where a father is talking to his son, and the son asks him, Dad, am I, am I good? Am I a good person? And the, uh, the dad says, uh, yeah, you are a good person. You know, you're the goodness of your mom and me kind of meshed into one. And, uh, he said, uh, he said, but th- will that, will that help me when the evil comes? And there's greater context to the story that I'm not getting into for why he's saying that so overtly. But he says, will that help me when the evil comes? And the dad says, yes, it'll help. And then the boy asks, and this part gets me a little emotional because I love it. The boy asks in response to that, he says, will it save me? And the dad simply looks at him and says, it'll help. And I think that's, I find that beautiful because he's not over promising it, but he is speaking sort of a direct truth that we may find ourselves unequal to whatever circumstance we're facing, whether that is objective evil or if that's something more circumstantial and and situational. But, um, goodness helps that we can make, we can make choices to be actively good to people and that will help. It will help stem the tide of, of the darkness that's coming at us in whatever context we're in. And I firmly believe that. Um, whatever other nuances I would add to it based on my personal Christianity, uh, I firmly believe that, that in general, goodness trumps uh, darkness and that it will, it will defeat darkness. That when you, uh, when you come against it, it is more powerful. The, good, the light is more powerful than the dark. And uh, I think that's something that we should remember more often than we do when we face challenges or difficulties or adversaries in our life. Sure. Um, 
So uh, unless you had anything else uh, sort of burning to talk about, I think we'll end it there. Um, good. I think it's been a really good, good. Uh, it's a good talk. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, we hope you did too. You, uh, as we say on every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation. And we would love to hear what you guys have to say about this. You can respond to us in a couple of ways. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at the Nathan Rouse, T H E Nathan Rouse. You can also uh, like us on Twitter, The Fear of God. Is that right? That's our direct Twitter handle? The Twitter handle is at The Fear of God. At The Fear of God. You can also uh, like us on Facebook. There's a link through Twitter to, to like us on Facebook on our Facebook page. You can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your favorite scary moments from The Conjuring or from anything. We'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the themes we've discussed, and we'd just love to hear from you in general. What are, what are, we, uh, what are we discussing next week, Reed? Next week, we're going to finish this conversation about The Conjuring and the Warrens, and we're going to yes. move on to The Conjuring 2, which has only just recently That's... came out, but, uh, but we are going to talk about The Conjuring 2. So if you have a chance, please see that movie, um, and, uh, and then come back and join us for the conversation next week. As always, Nathan, thank you for being a part of the conversation with me. Thank you, Reed. And we'll see you next time, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.